Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a very exciting and exotic-sounding new work by a young composer whose music the Albany Symphony has never before played. Her name is Clarice Assad, and she's this year's Mellon-funded composer-educator partner with the Albany Symphony, which means that she'll be with us a number of times working with a group of Hackett Middle School students in the Albany School District, creating a whole bunch of new compositions that these young people are going to work on, coached by this wonderful Brazilian composer, Clarice Assad. And she'll also be with us on our final concert, our American Music Festival concert. So I thought it was wonderful to bookend the season with this very gifted uh, and fascinating young composer. Clarice was born in Rio de Janeiro in, uh, in Brazil and grew up there and in France and then eventually made her way to the United States where she uh, got a master's degree in composition from the University of Michigan, working with another great friend of the Albany Symphony, Michael Doherty, who was one of her beloved professors there. Her father is uh, one of the two members of uh, one of the world's most famous guitar duos, Sergio Assad. He and his brother tour the world, and uh, Clarice has written for them and has traveled with them and is a a very uh, lovely and interesting composer. When I approached her about writing a piece for the very opening of our new season, I explained that we had two big Russian war horses on the program, one very famous one, the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony, and one much less famous uh, but equally great piece, Shostakovich's mighty first violin concerto. So instead of uh, encouraging her to write something that sounded like Russian music or that dovetailed with those two works, I really encouraged Clarice to do something entirely different. And I think she took very much to mind this idea of a, a special celebratory piece to open the season. Now, Clarice works a lot with improvisation and with body percussion. She seems to run a great number of, of student workshops where she has uh, kids create uh, music, but partly by drumming on their on their chests or on their knees or uh, making all sorts of original sounds. And interestingly, uh, she decided to write a piece that is in essence a rain dance. Uh, The Tupi-Guarani people are a very ancient native tribe that lives in the Amazon rainforest. And uh, this is essentially their rain dance. And it starts with no rain, with their conjuring their gods and, uh, and asking them to bless the people with rain, and that it actually involves a rainstorm, which you'll hear very audibly, I think, through the the piece. And then to end the piece, which is only about six or seven minutes long, uh, there's kind of a celebratory ending to the piece. And what's very unique and original and I think quite uniquely Brazilian sounding about the piece is not only that Clarice at various points asks parts of the orchestra, the orchestra members, to uh, to do some body percussion to make snapping sounds for the the rain, you know, as we used to do in, in preschool or rubbing their hands together or, or 
clapping their hands to make uh, thunder claps and such uh, and drum on their knees. But she also actually asks the winds and brass instruments at certain times when the strings are playing to both um, chant and even occasionally to yell and to vocalize very specific things to, to call up their, their god, Nyanderu. In fact, that's the name of the piece, Nyanderu. And so you'll hear this chanting, some of it uh, on pitch where they actually have to sing specific pitches and some of it just sort of general as they uh, conjure their god and uh, their various deities to help uh, create rain. So a very exotic and beautiful introduction to an exciting young Brazilian-American composer, Clarice Assad. Here is her brand new work, Nyanderu, to open the Albany Symphony's season. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the Albany Symphony performing Clarice Assad's brand new work in its world premiere, Nyanderu. It was conducted by me, David Allen Miller. And it was a great voyage into this very uh, multifaceted program, a lot of darkness and a great deal of light as well in the concert, starting with light, obviously, and now progressing to a, a somewhat darker and more difficult piece. This by the great 20th century Soviet composer Dmitry Shostakovich, his violin concerto number one. As you probably know about Shostakovich, because his career and his adult life so closely paralleled that of Joseph Stalin and of the Soviet Empire, uh, he faced grave and almost insurmountable difficulties during his adult life. And it's almost miraculous that he was able to produce the incredible works in such a myriad of genres as he did, not just in the symphonic field and concertos, but also his magnificent uh, string quartets and other works for solo piano and other instruments as well. Shostakovich was held up at a very young age, just after the premiere of his very first symphony, when he was a, a very young 20-something-year-old man, uh, as the great hope of Soviet music and Soviet culture. And he occupied a very special place in Soviet culture for most of his life. But that did not allow him to miss the terrible, oppressive influence of the terrible tyrant of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. As you probably know, Stalin at various points purged not only millions of Soviet citizens, uh, bureaucrats, politicians, common people, but also a myriad of the greatest artists of the time, poets and writers, filmmakers, sculptors. Every type of artist uh, was punished by Stalin, many most often losing their lives, disappearing into the gulag, never again to return. And so at two points in Shostakovich's life, he faced uh, really great danger from the regime. First, uh, just around the time, just before the composition of his mighty Fifth Symphony, perhaps his most famous piece, Stalin had been to see a performance of Shostakovich's new opera, Lady Macbeth, and had, I guess, loathed it and found it depraved. And the next week, a, a big article came out on the front page of Pravda denouncing Shostakovich. And Shostakovich later said that, you know, at this time he, he kept, he decided to keep a, a packed suitcase by his bed because he expected the Secret Service, the KGB, to come and take him away at any moment. Eventually, Shostakovich was rehabilitated in the mid-30s through the Fifth Symphony and other works. But then again, late in Stalin's life in 1948, there was a second purge in which not only Shostakovich, but the other greatest composers of the day, notably Sergei Prokofiev and Kachaturian, were also denounced for what was called formalism. In other words, I guess their music had strayed too far from serving the uh, the needs or the interests of the Soviet people, and they were all denounced, even though the three of them were uh, among the most famous composers in the world, not to mention the Soviet Union. 
And suddenly, Shostakovich, who had been one of the most loved and appreciated composers of the day, found himself completely out of work. Uh, his works were not played. He um, really was impoverished for two or three years and then very gradually was allowed to begin creating film uh, music, occasional works, things uh, under pseudonyms. Uh, and then eventually, a few years later, just before Stalin's death in 1953, he was, quote, rehabilitated. But this violin concerto is one of the works that uh, Shostakovich wrote during this period, probably in 1947-48, maybe even before this public purge occurred. Um, but it was one of Shostakovich's private works. It was it was written for the great Soviet violinist David Oistrakh, who in fact gave the premiere in 1955, seven or so years after its composition. Shostakovich, I guess, knew that this was one of the works that would be criticized or that for which he would be denounced. And so he didn't let anybody know that he had written it. He basically wrote it and put it in a closet and waited seven years until after the death of Stalin to release the work. Um, it's not that the work is so overtly critical or hostile or – although you know, I suppose there is a reading that one could make of it being, again, about the sadness and the tragedy of this difficult period. Uh, but it is a, a rather unconventional work and a very – uh, dark, brooding work in many ways and in many parts. Uh, it's in very unconventional form, four instead of the usual three concerto movements. And in addition to the four movements, there is in essence a fifth movement between the penultimate and the ultimate movement, the third and the fourth movements. There is an incredible, extremely extensive cadenza for the solo violin. Everybody stops and the solo violin plays essentially for five minutes by him or herself. And I must say partly because of that and partly because the other movements are so demanding, both emotionally and technically, it's considered, I think, by violinists one of the most difficult works from a stamina perspective and just from a, a sheer can-you-play-the-notes perspective. We're very fortunate to have um, a great, great interpreter of this work. He's an old friend of mine and a great violinist, world-renowned violinist. Uh, he is the the uh, Taiwanese-born American violinist Joliang Lin, or Lin Joliang, uh, better known to all of us on this side of the pond as Jimmy Lin. Uh, he's a professor, a distinguished professor at Rice University, and just a, a great figure in music. He'd been a, a student of the great uh, Dorothy DeLay at the Juilliard School, and has toured the world playing with virtually every major orchestra and with all the greatest chamber musicians, uh, and we're honored to have him with us. It's a, it's a piece that I've always wanted to do and had never before done, and Jimmy said, well, why don't we do it? I do it a lot, and, and he, he, he said, I do it a lot, um, and I'd love to do it with you in the Albany Symphony. So here we are. Uh, the work is in four movements. The first movement is, in a way, maybe the most taxing and challenging in terms of the listener trying to understand what uh, Shostakovich might be saying. It's a nocturne, and it's a, a very minimal piece, not in the, the sense of minimalist music, but just in that very little occurs. It's beautiful chords and very delicate, very simple, and very minimal violinistic writing. It's almost like a, um, a rumination on something. And, and, and there is this idea through the piece, particularly in the second movement, but also to a certain extent in this movement, uh, of an interest that Shostakovich had in Jewish music, in this very uh, folkloric kind of Jewish music. Shostakovich was not Jewish, but he was fascinated by Jewish music and I think felt a great kinship to the plight of the nationless Jewish people who sort of wandered the planet. And I think in a certain way, he felt very much like he was very much in touch with his own inner Jewish self, even though he wasn't Jewish, because he felt rather adrift in Stalin's Soviet Union. So there are little intimate of Jewish folk song, and uh, there's a beautiful little theme that gets going, but it's all rather fragmented and just sort of, in essence, this 12-minute conjuring of, of this dark world of the time. Shostakovich is reputed to say at the end of his life that 
I think the quote is, all of my symphonies are tombstones. And while this piece is not a symphony, there are certainly movements in many Shostakovich works, in many of his greatest works, the first movement of the Tenth Symphony, the third movement of the Fifth Symphony, etc., which are essentially requiem movements for all of the people all of the friends, all of the colleagues that he lost. And it sounds to me as if this first movement, this introspective nocturne, is one of those requiem movements. So a very eerie and beautiful first movement, a very um, thrilling, exciting, and kind of wild ride, uh, one of these uh, sardonic scherzi that he likes to write, second movement. The third movement is a powerful, beautiful passacaglia. A passacaglia is essentially a, a, a piece in which there is a what they call a ground or a, essentially a bass line that repeats over and over again. In this case, the bass line, I think, is about 17 bars long, so it's a rather extended, maybe a a one-minute-long progression of the bass. But what's fascinating about it is that the entire movement is made up of essentially nine repetitions of that bass line. So if you listen to the the bottom, the cellos and the bass at the beginning of the movement playing uh, very powerfully, you'll hear that, that that very austere theme just keeps repeating itself in different instruments. At a certain point, the horn has it, the winds have it, even the solo violin takes it at one point, and that enables Shostakovich to embellish it and to build beautiful lines around it. But because it's this powerful bass line that keeps reiterating itself, it has an unbelievably monumental cumulative power. And this is one of Shostakovich's most dramatic uses of Pasakaya. He loved to do this sense of this, this type of continuing variation. And then finally, the last movement is an absolutely breakneck uh, burlesque and allegro con brio, a, a, a lively, fast movement that eventually turns into a presto as fast as can be, a very dashing and daring piece. You, you'll also probably notice in the second movement, there's a fantastic middle section, the scherzo that comes up and, and sounds very much like a Jewish folk song, a very lively, Judaic-sounding kind of folkish sort of theme. So here it is now, Shostakovich's Violin Concerto Number no. 1, originally written in 1947, but not uh, released until 1955. In fact, fascinating that he actually assigned two opus numbers to it, an earlier one and a later one. It is in four movements, Nocturne, Scherzo, Passicaglia, and Burlesque, with a monumental violin cadenza between the third and fourth movements. It's performed by the Taiwanese-born violinist Zhou Liang Lin with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on our program is another great Russian masterpiece from a much earlier period uh, by a hero of Shostakovich's, in fact, by none other than the great Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Uh, This is his seminal fourth symphony, a work that sits right in the middle of his creative oeuvre. Uh, It comes, just as Shostakovich's violin concerto comes from a time of great crisis, in this symphony, Tchaikovsky is experiencing one of the greatest sort of emotional crises of his life. He is in middle age. He's had a great deal of success. He has been befriended by his beloved friend, this mysterious woman, Madame von Meck, who never wants to meet him but exchanges the most intimate letters with him and funds his activities, essentially paid his rent for a great number of years, even though 
they never met, and that was one of the stipulations of her arrangement with him. Uh, and he writes a symphony that he dedicates to her, to Madame von Meck. But the symphony comes from a very difficult time in Tchaikovsky's life. As you probably know, Tchaikovsky was a gay man in Russia in the late 1800s, which was not a an easy thing to be, punishable by death, I guess. And at certain points, Tchaikovsky decided, partly because his elderly father hoped or wished that he would get married or because he had the naive idea that he could somehow overcome his homosexual proclivities, at this point in his life and career, he decided it was best to marry. So he kind of randomly selected a young woman who had been a piano student at the conservatory in Moscow where he taught, even though she seemed a tad imbalanced and would turn out to be more than a tad imbalanced. She had professed a sort of love for him, even though they barely knew each other. And so he went to her and proposed marriage. They, in fact, got married, and this precipitated one of the great crises in his life. Uh, he had essentially a complete nervous breakdown within two weeks of the marriage and tried to drown himself, fortunately for us, that was unsuccessful, and it took him a number of years to recover from this great shock. This symphony comes from that period. It was uh, begun before this whole crisis, but very much with this idea of how to deal with his homosexuality kind of hanging over him. In fact, uh, it's an extremely programmatic symphony, and we know this because he wrote a very extensive fabulous letter to Madame von Meck in which he describes their symphony, the symphony that he's dedicated to her, and he really describes it without being too pictorial as being about fate and one's inability to escape from fate. And if you remember the symphony, you know, it begins with that incredible, the sound of fate blasting in the brass. And so on and so forth. And he even writes in his description to her, this is fate, that sword of Damocles that hangs over our heads. As if we can, uh, something about, you know, we cannot escape. All we can do is submit to it. And what's fascinating about the symphony is that although the symphony travels to the most fascinating and beautiful and, and varied places, at various points throughout the symphony, uh, most climactically near the very end of the last movement, but at various points in the other movements, that idea of inescapable fate, that motive, slams back in in the slow movement and at various points even in a disguised way in the, in the scherzo in the third movement. The work is in four movements. The first movement after this idea of the sword of Damocles, of fate hanging over one's head, processes to this incredible kind of twisted waltz. That sort of twists and turns on top of itself, maybe a depiction of his own inner turmoil, who, who knows? Then there's a very uh, wonderful and strangely different set of contrasting second themes. Um, he, he writes about it. It is as if you lose yourselves in dreams. You know, a delicate vision of beauty is before me. Beautiful. These wonderful wind expressions in the clarinet and the bassoon and so on and so forth. And in essence, the first movement is, is kind of the war between these two ideas, this idea of forgetting oneself and being able to accept life and this other idea of of destiny that won't leave you alone. Uh, the second movement, a beautiful slow movement beginning with a very famous oboe solo that's then given to the, the cellos, very folk-like theme, again about uh, trying to find peace and happiness. Then there's a, a great middle section, and he writes about how I remember back to what it was like when young love boiled 
you know, fresh in my in my he doesn't say arteries, but fresh within me, and and anything was possible. And so this this middle section is filled with sort of the triumphant sensibility of youth, but then it sinks back into this beautiful folk like idea of sadness uh, and ends really sort of with exhaustion, with the the beautiful opening theme kind of wearing itself out with a last beautiful and nostalgic bassoon solo and then kind of disappearing in the orchestra after that. The third movement, one of Tchaikovsky's most original creations, is that famous pizzicato scherzo. All the strings put down their bows and play the entire movement just plucking with their fingers, pizzicato. Uh, He describes this idea of sitting in the house with the rain gently tapping on the the roof and the the windows, uh, and it's a, a chance again to sort of lose yourself in reverie. It's a wonderful effect, almost like a giant balalaika with the whole orchestra. Very delicate, beautiful thing. And in the middle, he says, you see in the distance uh, um, uh, some drunken peasants and then a brass band marches by and the peasants make fun of the the, the band members. And he, he creates this in such a wonderful way. The woodwinds and the brass who have all been entirely silent for this whole pizzicato, balalaika, rain section come in right in the middle, the solo oboe and then joined by the other woodwinds. And, and to me, it always sounds very much like drunken peasants. And then the brass band comes in very quietly. This is And then the clarinet sort of makes fun and dances around them and the piccolo makes fun and dances around them. And then eventually it matriculates back into this beautiful uh, string pizzicato scherzo. And the ending is more of the sort of a combination of the, the different elements of the brass band, the drunken peasants and the string pizzicato. And then finally, the last movement, uh, to me, in a way, the most interesting movement of all, uh, is a a piece that's played frequently by pretty much everybody because it's so fantastic. It's a big, tremendous... um, And it sounds very triumphant. And it's usually interpreted very triumphantly. But uh, And he even writes in his letter to Madame von Meck, if you can't find inner happiness, go to the peasants, go to the villages and enjoy their their happiness and see if that will help you. You know, good luck with that. I don't know. It doesn't... I don't think when one's really depressed, going and seeing happy people is necessarily the best thing to do. But that's Tchaikovsky's advice in this movement. And yet, interestingly, uh, in addition to this wonderful set of fanfares and triumphant brass uh, explosions of sound, exciting things, there's this quote that is um, from a very famous old Russian folk song. Uh, It goes something like, Vopali biryoza stayola, vopali kudryova stayola, luli luli stayola, luli luli stayola. And it's a folk song about a birch tree standing. A, a birch tree is sort of a symbol of, of Russia, of the strength of Russia, but it's a, a, a tree standing alone in a field. And to me, I, I, whenever I hear this second idea of the piece that keeps coming back and eventually working its way toward crisis, I, I think of it as this idea of loneliness. You know, here's Tchaikovsky and everyone around him is celebrating, but he stands lonely and it becomes a very poignant and nostalgic idea. So again, it's this wonderful juxtaposition of of joy and incredible lonely alienation and sadness and how he then sort of finds his way through that um, juxtaposition, that conflict. So now here is Tchaikovsky's mighty fourth symphony. The work is performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.